Today on the Business Leader Breakthroughs podcast, we are joined by David Meir. David is a director and CEO of the Scalarup Group and was named the Deloitte Top 200 CEO of the Year in 2021. The judges of the awards observed David to be an unsung hero of New Zealand business with a hands-on, deep and fanatical knowledge of customer requirements, process plant, equipment and design for Scalarup's manufacturing customers. In our discussion today, David shares how 10 years in Japan and a lifelong pursuit of judo have helped shape his leadership style. He shares his top three leadership insights of learning by doing, how structure, people and process always come before the PL and the balance sheet, and why mistakes are good. If you want to know how to reduce your monthly end accounting cycle from 10 working days to one, listen in as David shares how he achieved this. David, welcome along to the podcast. Fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks, Ryan. Looking forward to it. All right, David, let's dive into some fast fact questions so the audience can get to know a little bit about you very, very quickly. If uh, you were on holiday, would we find you bungee jumping or on the pool lounger? Both. So the answer to that, I, I like doing both. I like the adventure things, but I also like sitting back by the pool, reading a book, and when it gets too hot, diving in. Love it. Food-wise, are you a breakfast or a dinner person? Both. I like food, seafood, eat food. <laughs> I like it. It's, it's good. And uh, I'm going to adapt this one. What would be your um, favorite style of combat sport? I would have said Corsin Judo, old style Judo, but I'm actually really excited about some of the developments that modern Brazilian Jiu Jitsu has come up with. And I think it's the most complete martial art. But, you know, true combat, of course, it's about really hurting people. I think a gun's probably better. Yeah, never, never bring a uh, knife to a gunfight kind of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And David, you talked about uh, fondness of reading a book beside the pool. Would that always be a a real physical copy or are you an electronic type person? I read a lot of electronic stuff like the Financial Times and things like that. So the answer again is both. I'm an end person, not an all person, if that makes sense. So, but when I read a really good book, there's something about, and I actually mark up books with my pencil and things like that. So I find you know, really interesting books, like one that really had a big impact on me. And I must say, I reread books. So um, Who Stole My Customer by, um, you know, very, very well-known author. It's a very old book now, but it it applies just as much now as it did in the past. Hmm. uh, Get an opportunity to dig into that one a little more. Sure. And cats or dogs? I love cats. I've got two cats, two Bermans. Wow. So okay. that's, that, that is an awe. <laughs> that, that, that is, that is an awe. So, so two cats makes it an awe, is it? Well, sorry, I, you know, I prefer cats to dogs. So, you know, okay. I, I don't hate dogs or anything like that. Um, I like dogs, but I really like cats. I think they're very superior beings. <laughs> is, 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 so uh, that old saying of um, uh, cats have slaves and dogs have masters, do you, right. you buy into that one? Yeah, you I've do? tried waving the stick and throwing it and my cat looks at me, you, you're stupid, come on. <laughs> yeah, high, high level of intellect, maybe. Alrighty. Um, routine wise, David, are you an early riser or are you a night owl? I used to be a night owl, but I must admit that over the last, I don't know, five years or so, I've turned into, I get through more things early. And I just think, you know, my body's old and tired, so I have to get up and stretch. So, you know, doing martial arts, it starts the day off really well. So I have to say now I'm a morning riser. But some of my friends will be surprised to hear that. <laughs> right. But you feel like that's been a learned behavior, not something that came particularly naturally to you? Yes, yes, yes. I, I, it's a deliberate choice in that sense. And I just feel I get more done. And then, you know, I, 
you know, probably about once a month or I, I like to relax, just completely relax, not worry about anything. So that's all good. Nice. And David, you've got a uh, big trip coming up to Japan shortly on the yes. plane on the way over. Are we going to find you watching a thriller or a comedy? Um, I like BBC thrillers. I think they do it very well. And my wife is Japanese and she's also learned that if you watch an eight, for example, an eight episode series on the BBC of a thriller, you, you might get disappointed at the end of the first one, but it draws you in. And there's just some wonderful act, Martin Freeman, some of those kind of things. I mean, the, the night manager was a good example as well. Fabulous, you know, productions, I think. So thriller. And uh, I'm well aligned with you on uh, some of the work coming out of the BBC. They, they're doing some really epic, uh, epic things. Alrighty. Let's dive into your thoughts around leadership. You've had an extensive career, David, as a CEO at Governance and various organisations. Um, you've got some battle scars in the business world, as well as the Ooh. judo mat, um, <laughs> and some some learnings that have uh, come from both. But uh, your insights on things that have really shaped your leadership and things that you think help uh, shape the businesses that you're leading? I was heavily influenced when I went to Japan, and I went to Japan to do judo, and I hadn't connected that the way you learn something can be connected, you know, like judo, for example, can be connected to business. And we'll probably come back to it later. But one of the drivers in Japan is this thinking about improving yourself. So you improve yourself through um, two techniques, Kaizen and Kaikaku. And so Kaizen is sort of a continuous improvement thing where you reflect on the outcome. And if it's not what you wanted, i.e. you got thrown on your back hard, then you usually a painful experience like that, you try to prevent that happening. And Kaikaku is more of a big leap is probably the way to say it. But um, so I went to Japan uh, immediately after graduating from, well, I worked for a year and a half and then went to Japan and I, I was there for two years, supposedly. And then in the end, I was there for 10 and a half years. But the big learning, I'll break it down into the big three, if you like. But the first thing was really about you learn by doing. So I love reading books in that, but actually you, you may gain some knowledge. You may think you've gained some knowledge, but by applying that knowledge and practicing it, it becomes really useful to you. And different people learn in different ways. So, you know, the, the way I do a throw at judo, I, I can't easily teach it. A lot of people try to do a throw and then they say to me, it's not working. And I say, just try 10 times or just try 100 times. And so this learn by doing is really a big part of how I think about it. And it's the same in business. It's exactly the same. So the second thing is to focus on process versus outcomes. So I look at the structure of business as very much a left-hand side and a right-hand side. So the left-hand side is the structure, that you're, the roles and goals of the people. Then you have the people themselves. And then you have process. I've seen organizations where structurally, they say they're customer focused, but they all sit in individual offices and all that kind of stuff. They, they say they're a team, but they all sit in individual offices. And, you know, so it's really interesting. So structure can impede good people succeeding. So one of the things I learned early on is bad structure can make good people fail. So when I go and I did quite a bit of consulting for a while, when I go and I look at those structures and those information flows and make sure there's no impediment to success, then only then do I start reviewing the people. And then you review the actual processes themselves. So that's kind of the left-hand side. The right-hand side is the numbers. So the balance sheet, P&L, you know, cash flow, reconciliation of cash flow to net profit. And I think the mistake is it's like, it's like the score of the rugby game. You know, the Blues did really well to hang on. Just look at the score, what happened in the game. You know, so, it, but if you were a coach, do you focus on the outcome? Well, if you get too many bad outcomes, obviously you lose your job. But 
the way to improve things is to consistently work on the here and now. And I had a lot of people helping me with that thinking process, if you like. And so the last one for me is just, and I've been reflecting on this, particularly in New Zealand, where people are afraid of making a mistake. So you can't learn judo without being thrown. So when you learn judo, the first thing you learn is how to fall and how to protect yourself. Same with boxing. You learn how to defend before you learn how to attack or any martial art. So to me, we don't think about mistakes the right way. We're, We're trying to make sure no one fails. Now, the trick is, and this is very Japanese, It's not people failing. It's almost always the process. So if you standardize the process and hold the process accountable, then you're not blaming the person. And so a lot of Japanese techniques were taken out to America, like pokoyoke, which is um, effectively mistake-proofing. But the implication is the mistake is made by the person. So it's just a really interesting conceptual thing. Here's the thing I found in Japan, just the last thought. When a Japanese process makes a reject, they wrap it in cotton wool. That is the biggest source of opportunity for improvement because you have to make it again. If you had to make 100 bits and you made 99 and one as a defect, you have to then set up and make another one. What do we do in New Zealand? There are a lot of manufacturing, I tell you, we throw it in the bin. Not all, not all. There are some really good companies out there, but our thinking about the opportunity to learn is limited by the way we treat things, if that makes sense. So look, I'll stop. But that, to me, those are the three really important learnings. Learn by doing. Really separate out the left-hand side, right-hand side. So focus on structure, then people, then process. And then the third part is really this, how to deal with when things go wrong. Don't blame people. Focus on the process, standardize the process, do proper problem solving, and you'll get a great outcome. Brilliant. <laughs> Look, it certainly, it certainly does, um, David. I think it'll, uh, it'll help with our listeners' understanding if we dig into these a little deeper. So let's come back to learn by doing. I'd be really interested to know um, examples from your judo learning. So yes. you touched on it you know, a little bit there, but go, go deeper for us on some examples of how Learn By Doing works in a judo sense. And then can you can you give us some insights in a commercial or business world leadership? How, how have you not only thought about Learn By Doing, but how have you tried to bring that to the teams and the organizations you work with? The judo thing's interesting because when you when you go to train, you, you, you normally train three hours in a, in a session, one and a half hours in the old days was on the ground and one, one and a half hours standing up. I joined a university. At the university, there was almost no teaching month after month because they assumed you got the basic techniques right in high school. And all you're doing is refining your judo and you're wrestling with um, or you know competing with people that obviously the people in your dojo, you know, but once a month you go and either have a punch up somewhere or go and visit another university and you're coming up against people you don't know. There's no one there to coach you through it. You have you, you learn to depend on your own reflective thinking. So that's the judo thing. I'll give you a really simple example. I challenge all of your listeners to think, how long does it take them to get their monthly accounts done? Now, I'm telling you, it, it, for a New Zealand-based business, no overseas, let's forget about time differences. It should take four hours. But in the mindset of, of the accounting world, oh, no, 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 it won't be accurate. But if you break it down, and I can give very specific examples, it normally takes about 10 working days. So why does it take so long? And this is the, when you break down the process, here's a real practical thing. Almost all the information that you're waiting on, you knew before the month end. And the usefulness of that information, where they're worried about accuracy, 
for, for many of the businesses I look at, I spend less than half an hour looking at the numbers because I'm focused on the process. In fact, I can almost predict the numbers because I, I had measures on the process. So it kind of links back to what I was saying on that second thing. But just sticking with the first, here's what I love doing. And it's it, I see it as my role. I go in and we do it together. We actually standardize the process and we talk about the process of moving before month end the things that can be completed so that they're done once and they're finished. Thinking hard about why are we stopping waiting on something? Why are we waiting? Why can't we just accrue it? So we're waiting on an invoice for something we've received, but we raised a purchase order. It's all in the system. And be demanding is the other thing. So there's a small company, I should maybe say, named, maybe not. It's a Hamilton company I was the chair of. And they wanted to go from 10 working days to eight working days to closing the monthly accounts. And I said, no, next month, we're gonna do it in a day. And I went with them, we went, we broke it down. And proudly, when they had their 20th anniversary, I remember standing up and giving a brief speech. There were, there were far better speakers than me. And I called out the CFO who proudly said for three, yes, for three years, we've done it in a day. And I said, that's terrible. It takes a day, it should take four hours. <laughs> Best the bubble. Yes, but you know, it comes down to the value of doing it. We have all these systems and everything that can do things for us. Let, let them do it. You know, so but I think that is a real opportunity for New Zealand businesses. We we agonize over the accounting rules and things like that, when in actual fact the useful is usefulness of the information is to feed it back down into the teams. That's where the value of the, the financial information is. So of course we need it. I, I get that. Reflection is is useful, but if we, as uh, many people have said, if we spend too much time looking in the review mirror, mm-hmm. um, we don't spend a lot of time uh, looking about where we're where we're going. So, um, when you think about your learn by doing and instilling this with your organisations and your teams, is that really where you ask them to start? Is look at the what are we what are we looking to achieve here, and how and then how what are the steps to make that happen? Absolutely, um, that's a good summary. I think. Let's just take a really simple business and say it makes two kinds of things. And so it makes A and it makes B. The financial summary usually adds all that together. So you get one balance sheet, one P&L and things like that. But in the business, you might be making two different products. So as, as I said, so when you're making A, there's a team, you can allocate the people to that. So in effect, split your P&L into two and split like a value stream, they call it, a value stream for A and a value stream for B. Value stream A uses almost no capital. There's a lot of people and value stream B is a lot of big equipment and few people. Contrast those two things. Just by splitting that out, you get a real insight. But here's the key. Trial a change in one of the teams. And if it's a good change, then you'll see it in the P&L within a month. So that and that feedback must go back to the team that made the change. Practically, that's what we should do. But in the companies I worked in Japan, how often were they doing those changes? Learning by doing, how often? Two or three times a day. In the best companies I've seen in New Zealand, how often do we do it? We're lucky to do it once a month. So they are learning faster. That's the key. It's kind of like the old joke. You're in the you're in the desert and you see a jaguar coming. There's you and me, Ryan, and you start pulling out your running shoes. And I, you know, you're a young, fit, strong-looking guy. And I'm, I'm an old judo player with tired knees. And so I start running and you say, you can't out, what are you doing? You can't outrun a Jaguar. And I say, I only have to beat you. So that kind of thinking, it's not how fast you're learning at the start. You just have to be ahead of the opposition. But you need a, you need a process or a thinking, a way of thinking to accelerate that as you need to. And the answer is standardized process. So another, another way of thinking about it is standardize every process except people. 
because people are individuals. If you had a twin brother, you, you're actually different. You're different partly because of the experiences. Genetically, you're almost exactly the same, but, you know, you, you dealt with this this way. You got married, he didn't, or whatever. Sure. So, you know, so people are individuals. So, so why do we allow HR to standardise process? Why do we say we need a short list of five people and we're going to interview three? To me, that's just nuts. So, you know, I'll give you a hint. The first thing I do is get rid of HR. That's my job. That's the leader's job. You can't delegate it down. I'm sure if, if, if we have an issue, I need a sure. legal, legal person or sure. something like that. I believe HR is what leaders do. So the standardization of process is really important. And then with the standardized process, I should just emphasize, standardized process means different people do the process the same way. This is very hard for Kiwis. If I take A and I put B on top of A and then C on top of A, okay, if I take C and put it on top of B, and then I put CB on top of A, the outcome is exactly the same. Show a Japanese those two processes. Are they the same process? No. Show Kiwis? Yes. This is the fundamental issue I wrestle with. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because it is. I, I see huge gains in companies by standardization. Huge. I'm interested in the learn by doing, and you mentioned it earlier, David, where you said uh, you've actually got to have the reflection piece as well because we can repeat things a thousand times, but if we don't attempt to do it differently or advance it or make it better each time, then we'll be doing it exactly the same in a thousand, the thousandth time as you did the first. Uh, an observation in organisations is they always have this sense of um, busyness and requirement for productivity. So how do you and your organisations make sure that the people are taking the time to reflect and going, are we improving here? Is that getting better? Um, doing those you know, retros is, I guess, one of those popular terms that we're hearing, hearing now. Um, how do you build that into your organisations? It's a really good question. Um, I think one of the one of the roles of leaders is every now and again to reflect, not when they see the monthly numbers, but a, a good way of starting it, I think, is, um, and I encourage my leaders to do this, have your meetings on a Monday, or if you're an international company, have your meetings on a Monday, Tuesday, because at the start of the week, psychologically, you look forward. On a Friday, don't have a meeting, but sometimes get together and chew the fat. What worked? What didn't work? Reflection. I honed this a bit. I did do an MBA for my sins at Canterbury after I came back from um, Japan, and I did it full time. And we had to form groups with people we didn't know. And there were four terms effectively. So it was about 15 months in total. And each term you ended up in a different group, but occasionally by luck or bad luck, whichever way you look at it, you'd end up with a few of the same people. The most effective group we had, we agreed that we would, we did two things. The person that was in charge of the project was not the person that naturally had the best skills. In other words, there was an audit function. So for example, if I was good at operations and there was an operational exercise, someone else who wanted to learn more about that would be in charge. But before we handed it in, I'd, I'd hold up the mirror and review it. But every Friday, we get together and have breakfast. So in all organizations, it's often around, often around the coffee machine, or if you're smart, in the old days, you'd put wine on or a beer at the end of the week. We become a bit PC, Ryan, seriously. We, we, we're kind of going away from that opportunity to relax and chew the fat and actually criticize people, but in a more constructive environment, if that makes sense. And I'm not sure that's helping. And certainly, people who live their lives on a the screen, they're losing that interaction. And so again, I put it on leaders and I put it on my leaders quite hard to force that interaction. So that's one conscious way of doing it. And then to reflect on the learning by doing is you can't do it from your office. 
So when I was in Christchurch recently, I spend time down in manufacturing. I know I can pretty much name all the people there. And at the moment in Christchurch, we're suffering a bit from absences from COVID. And so people are really tired and working hard and committed to the company. And it's great to see. They really appreciate you going up and and they may be doing a repetitive job. You know, in, in our um, factory in Christchurch, we have a number of quite repetitive jobs, and that's not great, to be honest. But, you know, they're so excited to see you and you ask about their son or whatever, some personal um, situation that they're in, and they just enjoy the interaction. But also, I always ask them, what's the one thing? If I could, if I had a magic wand and could solve one thing, what is it? And it just changes their mindset. It's just a simple thing to do. Uh, I learned an exceptionally powerful lesson in my very first role. I was working at Yates, the uh, garden seed um, people, and I was a young university graduate, thought I knew it all. And uh, we, I was working in the logistics team and we had some challenges around inventory. And I thought I had all the great ideas because I'd been to university and I knew all the stuff. Didn't go, didn't go and talk to anyone in the warehouse. Just uh, you know, sat at my desk, came up with what I thought were the great ideas. Um, of course, they were absolutely terrible. Um, uh, post that, when had a when had a when had a chat to the guy that drove the forklift all day every day, who mm-hmm. I had done no consultation with, no discussion, not even a, a chat. And uh, when I finally uh, worked out to have a discussion with him, of course, he had the solution. If I had gone and gone and talked to him in the very first place, we would have solved the problem in five minutes um, and a lot more effectively than I did in, in a whole bunch of time. So, um, yeah, talk to the people at the, the front line. They, they have great ideas and they're just waiting to be asked. I'm sure many of your ideas were good, Ryan, I'm sure, because there is, there is something about going to university about learning how you learn. I mean, I that, you know, I did civil engineering, but so what, you know? Um, but I did think a lot about how I learn, and people have different learning styles. So my father was a fitter and turner. So of course, when I worked with him in the holiday holidays, and one lesson you learn is don't work for your father. But anyway, um, but some of the other guys would like to have me on, and they they would test you. They, I don't know if you were tested. They'd say, "Oh, can you go and get a glass heated hammer?" And I was in Dunedin. Can you go and get a tin of tartan paint? And they were hard. And I'd say, oh, yes, you know, where do I buy it? I'd go out and buy a milkshake and sit around for 10 minutes and take a break because they thought they were having me on. I was thinking, oh, you know, did they think I'm that stupid? But but the point I'm making is there was a camaraderie that I love about particularly manufacturing businesses because people, you know, they, they can chip away at you, but they actually care. And it, it is the way we bond and form, you know, a good a good strong culture. But the, the key thing in culture is customers because at the end of the day if we don't have customers we don't have a business so one of the interesting things is the learn by doing is to do it not just within the company but to do it with customers and that's that's really the thing we're making a lot of progress on in scalar up at the moment is i feel we're getting a lot closer to our customers and remember the difference between wants and needs you know people rattle about wants and needs but You've got to be careful. A customer can say, I need something. And you, if you're not careful, you trick yourself into thinking it's a need. This is the way I think about it. Want is what they say. Need is the underlying need that often when you point it out, they're surprised. So in other words, they didn't realize their need. There's a lot of learning in that. And I'm, I'm very proud of, there are several, several areas of the scale right now. We've got young leaders coming through. They really get this. So I'm, I'm excited about it. It's great for them. And how do you get close to the customer? Well, the first thing is you go and meet and talk to them. And, and so, you know, after COVID, I'm really looking to getting out and doing that myself, but I can't visit all the customers. I think the other thing is 
a lot of our business is OEM related. So we solve a problem for the customer. So defining the problem means you have quite in-depth conversations and often you're identifying a problem again. The customer doesn't realize that they have. But, but if you think about it, what we're doing is building trust. You need a high level relationship because I define the customer in these larger organizations that we deal with OEM customers. It's the person that decides whether to use our service or buy our product compared to our competitors. There's a point where you do the first deal, where you look them in the eye and you say, okay, we've, we've listed these things, a sticky point is this. So if I solve this, you'll give us the business. And they say, yes. And you look them in the eye and you shake hands. Once you've done that, you deliver. Once you've delivered, that person is your employee in that sense. That's your champion inside that organization. So that's how I know we're winning. Recently, one specific example, one of our employees was going to Vietnam, first trip for a long time to Vietnam. We do a lot of business in Vietnam, manufacturing there, and then sell the products in the US. And a US customer that we, we're working on some really big projects for had an issue. Not with us. It was with another supplier that can't supply. So he was on his way to Vietnam on the Saturday. He, he drew up sort of a sketch and sent it to the toolmaker. On the Monday, the toolmaker cut tools here in Auckland. On the Tuesday, they did some samples. And... On the Thursday, we shipped 100 good ones to the customer and we completed the 400 others that they needed for comprehensive testing the following week. And the guy phoned up. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe how fast we did that. And, he, and he's just effusive. And he said, I've made sure everyone in this organization knows how good you are. And when you hear that, you know you're winning. That's a really specific example. But I collect these things and I play, so back to the feedback, I play that back to people. So last week I was talking at a marketing association and thing in Christchurch and I talk about purpose, five elements of purpose, true customer focus. We want to be the best supplier to our customers, employees. We could talk about employees for a long time. Then suppliers, we want to be fair but demanding with our suppliers. The group of people together is the community and the last one is shareholders. But just sticking with the third one, we have an issue like most exporters with getting containers into the US. So we make stuff in Christchurch and ship it up to the US. And the issue was actually not the shipping so much. And interestingly enough, it was the containers are unloaded at Pennsylvania and then go by train to the customer. And it was getting it on the train. And the customer was getting so frustrated. They were going to spend more than 100,000 US dollars on air freight and we didn't think it was necessary, but the lady in charge of marketing in, in Christchurch, she called in our freight forwarder and said, listen, you're about to lose a big chunk of your business. The issue is not the shipping. The issue is between the port and our customer on train. You've got a week. You need to prove you can solve this. And they did. But what I was pleased about is when I when I finally heard about this, because I'm, you know, I'm supposedly the CEO, so I'm, I'm probably the last person to hear about these things. But I asked Jane, the lady's name is Jane. I asked Jane, why did you do that? And she said, you're always talking about purpose. And you said, we need to be demanding, but fair. And she said, I was demanding, but also they were going to lose the business. So it helps the customer. It certainly helps us, but it actually helps them. To me, they, they're anecdotes, but put them together. That's the culture we're building. It's a winning culture, which I'm, I'm very proud of, but it's not, it's not me. I'm part of sure. it, of course, sure. but it's them doing the right things, independent of me, is probably the way I describe good culture in that sense. But. Let me just bring us to the process versus outcomes inside yes. that you shared with us. Uh, let me see if I've grasped this concept uh, in a way that uh, I've learned about it, and that's the, um, I don't know if you've come across the book, The Four Disciplines of Execution. Sure. 
Absolutely. And they talk there a lot about lead versus lag lag measures. Yes. Is that how you think a bit about that? That there's the um, if we're doing the process well, if we've got the right people in the in the right seats, if we've got the right structure around that, if we then monitor how we're going on that side, then the lag becomes the PL on the balance sheet on the on the far side. But let's focus on the things that you know, changing of the inputs to create the outputs. Is that a is that a reasonable kind of view of how you think about it? It is, but uh, maybe an easier explanation is I was influenced a lot by a person who lives in Christchurch, Renzi Hannum. So he's an Eitban in Sado Karate, and he he was a big influence on me um, in terms of my uh, martial arts career in that sense, but also spiritually. He helped me understand my mum passed away from cancer at not a young age so much, but, you know, he helped me with the thinking about that process. But he he became a mental coach to the All Blacks and other famous sports people. So he, he has this way of explaining things with red hats and blue hats. When things go wrong, you, um, you go into what they call the red zone, which is you're worried about the future and you're worried about the past. You forget your task. What's the first thing that happens? Lack of communication. So when COVID hit, the first thing I told all my leaders is we have to somehow double our communication. So is it email Is it or, or is it Teams? It's both. It's, it's just, let's just really up the communication. With our board, I was writing every Friday, I'd write a summary of what we'd achieved during the week and those kind of things. So that's the first lesson. The second thing is you need to get back into the blue. So something I applied in judo and I've applied in business is when you're in a situation that's out of control, Separate out, back out of the situation briefly. In other words, take a deep breath. You psychologically go up and look down on the situation that you were in. Looking down gives you some sense of control. It's a psychological trick. You, you, you think in martial arts, actually, you better be underneath, but that's another matter. But you look down on it. But here's the trick. The minute you get inevitably, you're engaging more of your brain and all those things. The minute you get an insight, act immediately. Don't analyze. Just act. That's the hard thing for middle-level managers. They, they, they seek permission, not forgiveness. So I talk a lot about that process. Now, it happened in a judo. I got out-gripped. I broke off the grips. I went back. I stood very side on so the guy could only get one grip. I know, I know he wanted two. I felt the throw he wanted to do. The minute he did that, I straightened up. He got two grips. He turned in. I smashed him. That was the last big fight I had. So I was really pleased. And I showed Renzi and showed, showed him the video, and I said, thank you. The thinking process got me there. So the same in business. We've, we've done some big deals where we, we've done some small acquisitions and things. But when you get to the nub of these things, the process is very similar. It never goes smoothly. You know that. There's always something. So when it goes wrong, if you're not careful, you go into a spin. So you have to recognize that. And don't worry about what the board are going to think or, you know, like just focus in. And the minute you get an insight, go for it hard. And it's just still me in good stead. So that's the psychological process I go through. You're right about the four E's and, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, the Jack Welsh and others who have driven through, you know, energy, energize, edge, execution, you know, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that, that's really helpful. But I, but I think the big lesson there is it's a pro, you can hear me talking about process all the time. The outcome, I won the fight. It could have gone the other way. I might have let him get two grips and he smashed me, he tricked me. Sure. But then it's like I said right at the start, it's about doing it again and again and again. It's the knowledge that you practice again and again. So you learn by doing, not doing once. Maybe I should say you learn by doing 100 times or something like that. But 
know, yep. it's, it's, it's that application. I'm, I'm interested that it all links very closely together. We talked about the um, power of mistakes and how you interpret those. Yes. And coming back to that, learning by doing, having, uh, I like your insight of, uh, where there's uh, you know, insight, act quickly. Um, we have a saying in our business: where there's insight, there's responsibility. It's like once you identify it, you need to go and do something about that and do it, do it straight away. So, uh, good alignment there. How do you how do you bring that kind of culture to a business where uh, I'm going to talk very generally here, but uh, we see in New Zealand culture an avoidance of mistakes. I think that goes right from our very very young age. We we want everyone to only have participation. We don't you know, encourage winning and losing you know some in some of our junior sport these kind of kind of days um, I feel like we do less and less to make it okay to make mistakes and learn learn from them I see that and I've recently been to the US and I, th- I think in the US they have a entrepreneurial culture that kind of goes hey look if you haven't had a few failed businesses then you haven't got enough stripes on you to, to keep going whereas in New Zealand culture we'd be very concerned about whether we'd failed or not how do you bring an acceptability of mistakes and then how do you how do you have help people take those mistakes and learn from them? It's really hard, and I wish I had a simple answer. To be honest, Ryan, if I had the answer, I'd, I'd be far more successful than, than I am. So you're right. I had the pleasure of working in Asabloid for a couple of years, where they have the same culture for entrepreneurs in Sweden. You can get funding if you've failed, and proven that you've learned from the failure. So even the business failure thing is the reason it's viewed differently is it's not the failing, it's the questioning of learning. The same with uh, quality in Japan. Japan's known for having demanding quality. So when I worked in Interlock and we exported to Japan, we had problems, we had product failures. We do our problem solving in that. And then as long as we'd identified a root cause and, and proven that we'd solved it, they'd accept even another mistake on the same, a different mistake that we hadn't picked up. They'd question our problem-solving ability because good problem-solving should pick up other issues. But I remember once that um, in a Japanese company I was working in where they were dealing with a supplier and they got it wrong and then they got it wrong again. And so the guy came in to talk and he said, I just want to talk to your boss. And he talked to the boss and said, why is that guy still employed? He doesn't know what he's doing. Back to New Zealand, you're right. The thing I've wrestled with when I was consulting, but even when I first came into Scalera, the higher you are in the organization, the more people want to tell you the good news and not the bad news. So there's just the straight out tendency to hide negative things and not talk about it as the opportunity that which limits the organizational learning. So one of the warning signs for me is when I see something going wrong, but I haven't heard about it, I hear about it only when I ask questions. So that's a sign that people are afraid. So another way of removing fear is back to what I said right at the beginning about if we define processes, if the process is broken, you fix the process. It's like the mistake proofing. It's not the person made a mistake. The process was broken. So we have to bulletproof processes. Kiwis in general aren't good at that because of the ABC thing. They they go, she'll be right. Well, it's not as bad as that, but, you know, kind of. We're very good at running a 100-meter race, getting to 90 meters. We're ahead. We look around. We actually need to finish it and then review it. But specifically, let's take rejects of a physical kind, like you make a product and you make a reject. Well, you have to remake the product, but there's a te- they call it the bin. There's a te- In Japanese, there's a tendency to throw it in the bin, whereas in Japan, they'd wrap it in cotton wool and take it and 
they'd form a team and actually analyze how that happened. So famously, when the Americans were buying computer chips out of Japan, they wanted Six Sigma, three parts per million defects. So the Japanese carefully sent one million good ones and then three rejects. And they were all excited about how the Americans really wanted to understand the kind of process defects you could get. And the Americans were like, oh, you know, you didn't understand. We just said three rejects and hidden in that million is acceptable. And then the Japanese went, I thought they were clear, but now we know they're not. Interesting, isn't it? I think a lot about this. If you create too much change, the wheels fall off. So round figures, how much should organizations be changing and learning? About 30%, about 70% should be taking what you've got and just making it better. That's probably my view. But it varies. It's not a fixed ratio. So if you have rapid competitive situations, you, you may have to be changing or re rethinking the whole business. You know, the big word, Pivot came out of America 10 years ago or whatever, out of Harvard. But wildly no, overused in the Stephen. last uh, three years. Yeah, you're right. It's been used in New Zealand now. We've got to pivot the company as if that means something. You know, I find that interesting. But some companies do need to pivot. So if you think of ScalarUp formed in 1910, it's a completely different company to what it was five years ago, let alone 111 years ago or whatever. So Irene Van Dyke said it, I think, really well. Just talking about sport in New Zealand. She was asked about the idea of not scoring for netball for young, young women. And she was asked, you know, how did she think about that? And she said, oh, but, you know, the competitive ones know who won, which was, I thought, a really brilliant answer because what it means is, look, I'm competitive. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm naturally, I can see you are by your body language. But some people aren't. I get that. And to have a large organisation or even a small organisation that's effective you need a culture that, that has both. Ultimately, we have to win as an organization. The real trick is how do you take you know, good people, honest people, hardworking people, and make them very good? Not everyone is going to be a superstar, and you, you couldn't deal with it if they were. But to me, the big challenge for New Zealand is we get distracted. You know, We get distracted about, and then we get afraid, you know, I, I've done this, and you know, we had a particular GST issue, and you know, we did a transaction. I remember verbally I said, oh, you know, I'm not sure if GST applies, but if it does, you will pay kind of thing. And it was agreed. But when the documentation came through, it was the wrong way around. It was several hundred thousand dollars. And my CFO was cringing. And then just the, the final blow on that, in the end, he, he said to me, oh, we've got to, you know, we've got to go. And I said, leave it. It's with me. So I took a deep breath. I waited a day or two. I really thought hard. How, you know, this was really important, of course. You know, it's a couple hundred thousand dollars. Then I rang the guy and I talked through the discussions we'd had and everything. And I said, do you recall this conversation? And we went through it and he agreed and the documentation was changed and there was no issue. But because it was a mistake, the CFO wanted to deal with it quickly, but it was putting more pressure on me, if that makes sense. Um, one, of the, one of the lessons I've learned is when it all seems to be going wrong and spent a couple of those through COVID, just sit back and take a deep breath. The sun will come up tomorrow. My cat will be hungry tonight. Um, and like... You know, you, you've got to ground yourself a bit and, and then you've got to exhibit confidence. We'll get through this. You know, relax. We'll get there. It might not be the outcome we necessarily hoped for or all those things. But at the end of the day, we're all safe. And New Zealand is fantastic. We're a great place to test products that doesn't ruin a market. So the Swedes got that and us are abloy. You know, there are a number of things we could do really, really well. We worry about the government, but I don't know. There'll be a different government in five years' time. I don't know which way it's going to go. It just probably doesn't matter. The key thing, Don Braid. I'm a big fan of Don Braid and Main Freight. And, um, you know, it's about education. But education alone is insufficient. It's taking some of those fundamentals and learn by doing. 
then educate people. It's not just about the numbers. Numbers are an outcome of process. Let's focus on people. Let's focus on process. But right at the start, if the structure's wrong, it won't work. And then if you make a mistake, talk about it proudly and involve other people. They'll solve it for you. Communicate. Hey, I've got a problem. You know, so I, I, that's, that's my strong advice to your listeners. Sarah, I'm interested. I, I've heard uh, two aspects of a uh, similar element you've talked about. One, the uh, story you just recounted around the GST was about um, <clears throat> calmness taking a breath, uh, letting the letting the question or the problem kind of sit with you for a while and then evaluating how you might deal with it. And then on the other hand, you also have the example of um, when we've got insight, let's take action straight away. Yes. Don't think about it too long. Yes. Uh, let's just get on with, with some action. How do you assess which of those paths you're going to, to use in a, in a situation? I think they're the same. So in the GST example, that's where you step back and disengage. The problem was someone in my team was trying to get me to engage. And so I was sitting back and then you come up and look down on the problem. But once I saw the way to lead the guy through the conversation we'd had, and I was quite clear in my mind, I had other issues I was dealing with. So you have to clear your mind. But then I had an insight. I picked up the phone and rang straight away. So that's kind of the way I describe what you're right. It, the way I said it, it appears there's two different things there. But to me, they're kind of the same. Does that make sense? It, it totally does. That's great, uh, great clarity and clarification on, on that point. Thanks. Uh, um, we talked a little uh, earlier about um, Kaizen. The, and, and and I'll let you define these because I'll um, I'll make hash of them. And Kaikaku, is that the correct that's yep. right. Can you give us a uh, explanation of those two two terms, sure. and then how you how you think about applying them? So kaizen was um, a, a concept developed by Imai Masaaki or Mr. Imai. So Imai is the surname, and he wrote a book in '67 called Kaizen, and subsequently followed up with Gemba Kaizen. Gemba means the workplace. In other words, you do kaizen in the workplace. Sadly, in the West, that became kaizen's about manufacturing, whereas to me, it's about the whole company. And lean, a word I don't like so much, is a subset of sort of Kaizen just-in-time thinking. So Kaizen is where you agree that you standardize a process before you make change, and then you make a change, you do the scientific method. So it's strange that the Japanese took deeming and applied quality, and it's strange that they took the scientific method and applied it, but we often skip the step. They standardize the process, so different people will do the process the same way. They predict a change in the output. They make the change. The outcome is never exactly what they predicted. Then they go back to where they were, and they try to find out the difference. There's a lot of learning in the difference. They don't just... So Kiwi companies often do some of that. They standardize the process. They make a change. It's better than it was. They lock that in place and make another change. It might be better. They make another change. It's worse. And now they can't go back to where they started because they're not sure where it went wrong. So Kaizen is very much the formalization of that process. So standardize the process so it's independent of people. So when it goes wrong, you're not blaming the people. You use the scientific method. It's never the same. It could be better than you expected, worse, than, or very rarely exactly the same as you predicted. It's, it's a learning process. Kaikaku, in simple terms, is halving or doubling. So that's where um, the biggest lesson I got, I worked at National Panasonic, and they had a line making VCRs and demand for VCRs in those days was going through the roof, and they were setting up in Malaysia, but they couldn't keep up. They had a 103-metre-long line with robots feeding and all that kind of stuff. 
And their answer to it was not, let's build another line, which involves capital and people and training and all those things. And of course, with the learning curve, a new line will start worse off than the existing line. So Kaikaku thinking was the leader that was sort of in charge, and he was a really, really good leader. He said, right, how do we have the time? If we have the time from A to B, we actually make twice as much. And so he said, right, I want you all to sort of process map everything. And he said, we're going to start on Monday. We're going to have the time. We're just going to, you know, like, and it was chaos really, and you know, for a while. I was staggered how much progress we made in five days by hitting it hard. Now, that was driven by huge customer demand. There wasn't time to buy another machine or do all the sort of other things. And I do worry in New Zealand sometimes, we, we do tend to get caught like there's, there's demand, but not enough to warrant a machine. So we, we tend to see it as a capital expenditure or not, if that makes sense. It's very slow is probably what I'm saying. The beauty of Kaizen, it's a way of saying that if you have through the learning curve and applying Kaizen, within a year, you should be at sort of... 95 or 80% of the capacity only is needed to achieve what you used to do than 100%. So in other words, you're gaining capacity for free. So whether it's answering the phone or selling insurance or whatever. So that that is the glue that actually pays for wage increases and those kind of things. I, I don't subscribe to the idea if you just pay people more they're more productive. So I'm, I'm of the other school, but, but that seems to be quite a prevalent view at the moment. But I'll tell you, people get really excited about making change that they can see and own. So the real trick about that is don't claim the credit, push it down into the teams and talk about the James or the whoever that have solved these issues and solved issues better than probably I can. So, you know, I guess that's back to that winning culture thing. But so specifically, I think New Zealand is a country. We've got a productivity commission. If they actually understood that productivity comes from Kaizen thinking standardization, we'd make a huge leap forward. And then there are one or two places where we could do kaikaku thinking. Now, there are companies here. I'm sure healthcare and some of the bigger companies are doing that. But we have more SMEs per head of population than almost any other country. Maybe Sweden's similar, but it's really important we somehow deal with small companies of five to 10 people. How do we do that? But but it's it's very un-Kiwi. I believe in Kaizen Kaikaku because I'm applying it and the numbers and the businesses I'm involved in. It seems very slow at times, but it's inexorable, if that's the right word. You know, it just keeps happening. And so once you're on a roll, it just keeps going and it's it's great. And that comes us comes right back to the learning by doing the ten thousand hours. Keep perfecting, keep practicing, keep trying to improve. Brilliant, David. You've given us so much to think about. Uh, I think evaluate in our own organisations and ponder. But let me just throw a couple of uh, closing questions at you. Sure. Um, what advice would you give your twenty year old self? Get on with it. Stop wasting time. Stop sitting around dreaming about girls. <laughs> Uh, yeah, look, I won't inquire as to uh, what age you were when you met your wife, David. That could get us in uh, dangerous Older territory. Older than that. Older than that. Older than that. Okay. <laughs> we, we had the realization it was time to time to move on. You know, in in life, not a lot matters, and you reflected on this a little bit. Where you're going, you know, the sun will come up tomorrow. Your cattle still need need feeding. Yes. Um, when you think about what's important to you, what is it that's important when you think about that? Obviously, my family, because you can't do it alone. So I'm very fortunate. You know, my wife's Japanese. I have two lovely kids. And so that's very important. And then the extended family in that sense. Um, there are people I consider trustworthy friends, and I'm, I've been very fortunate to have a number of them. And I regularly ring them up and say, I'm thinking of doing this. And I, I, I had to give a speech recently. And uh, 
and I was I was just expressing my appreciation where my friends hold the mirror up. So if you know, like one of them said, "What the something are you doing?" <laughs> like they're not afraid to tell me exactly how they see the situation and hold me accountable, which helps me become a better person because they're not they're not trying to gild the lily in any way. They just tell me as they see it, and I have more than one person. And I'm a big fan of, I'm the CEO of Scalera. So everyone thinks I'm the boss in that sense, but it's a minimum of two. You've got to have two people that are working on things together. To me, that's very important. And I I think, you know, when I have to take the deep breath or something, they're often the people I reach out to. If I feel, it's it's rare that I don't have a sense of the direction I I want to go in and that, but I've had huge support. And then I mentioned Renzi Hannum recently, and I've become comfortable in my skin. I mean, Oscar Wilde famously said, um, be yourself, everyone else is taken. I quite like his humour and wit, and he obviously developed these things and saved it up. But it's not that I think I'm a particularly good person or anything. It's not that. It's just that... I am who I am. So it's my job to improve, to polish that every day. And that's what I love about martial arts. I'm 66 now and I'm still staggering along, tying my judo belt, thinking I know something about judo. But every time I step on the mat, I learn something. Every time. And isn't that the uh, reflection of every great martial artist that uh, the longer they practice, the more they're involved, the uh, more they understand that it's less that they know? Yes, that's right. You're exactly right. The less that you know, and that too, you can't teach anything, as I may have mentioned earlier. But but I'm I'm very privileged in the sense that I've been given a lot of opportunities. But the other thing I'd say, I was talking to a young leader. I can't go through the details right now. He's living in the States, a Kiwi guy, mechatronics background, 36, I think, married, one kid, another kid on the way. There's a big opportunity for him that could come up quite soon. The big opportunities never come along when you're ready. So... Part of it is you get settled in and you feel in control. And Renzi Hannum was great at this. And then something comes along to throw, throw you out. And so the way to think about that is grasp it. That's kind of what I meant, like get on with it when I was 20. When I came back, finished my MBA, I joined, uh, I joined Interlock in Wellington. There was no role for me. I was on special projects, which is normally a dangerous title. Very but um, usually you're on your way out, of course. But what it did, it gave me an opportunity to dig into all parts of the organization and then start applying Kaizen through the whole. And then I saw a couple of big opportunities, the Kaikaku opportunities. So literally, since I finished my MBA, I've been applying that kind of thinking. So I've been very, very privileged to have people give, you know, make me a better person is probably an easy way to say it. And I'm sure that is the case. And you've been surrounded by some good people, David, but equally that uh, inside of grab it, get on with it, uh, take the opportunity when maybe it doesn't feel quite right, where timing's not perfect. You know, I think they're uh, valuable lessons and insights for life. Hey, David, I really appreciate you sharing your time and insights with us today. Um, it's very kind of you to do so. Uh, you've certainly given me a lot to think about, and I'm, I'm certain our, our listeners will be turning the cogs. Thanks. Wish you a, a brilliant and a safe trip to Japan. Thank you. Uh, connection with uh, yeah some important people in your life up there. So thanks again for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, no, thanks, Ryan. It's been great. Thanks very much.